Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Friends, I'm going to do multiple podcasts this year about work. And I do mean specifically my work, but work in general. Um, my three main jobs really are writing, podcasting, and teaching. The teaching I do through giving Ulysses courses at the Museum of Literature here in Ireland, through giving workshops and my write better writing coaching services. Because one of the astonishing things to me is that in spite of everything that's going on in the world, the, the hellish landscape <laughs> that so many people are encountering or watching or spectating, the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, obviously wars, housing crises, material degradation of the environment, overcrowding and overdensity, the daily scramble, the fears of fascism, in spite of all of that, we still have to work. It's like work, daily work, is somehow a larger principle than the horrors that are going on. Now, I understand that there is plenty of analysis available about how the fact that we have to work every day actually contributes and forms uh, the foundation for many of those problems. But I want to think just about what it means to work now and to pull apart the kinds of work I do in hopes that it offers something to you. So I'm going to start with the most obvious place, the podcasting, um, because you're listening to podcasts. To do that, I'm going to give you a very, very quick podcast state of the nation, or state of the world, I guess. And then I'm going to talk about my history with this show, um, how I ended up doing this, the good stuff, and cool stuff about doing the show, the very hard stuff, some of the spiritual stuff, and then also um, the economic aspects of it. This is not like a podcast 101 for people. This is actually kind of looking into histories and cultures of podcasting through my own experience. And I do think it'll be more interesting <laughs> than maybe that sounds at the outset. I'm still questioning whether or not this is going to be uh, a really fascinating episode for some or if this is actually going to be the one that nobody's into. But for me, it's very interesting. However, I do think that it will help anyone who wants to start a podcast think about if they want to do it, what kinds of histories lead up to starting a podcast. I do think if you have a podcast, you'll be nodding your head, or if you've tried one and dropped it, you'll be like, oh yeah, all that stuff. And I also think that if you just listen to podcasts, it will help you understand how much is in this thing that I'm doing and that you're listening to. Um, and how much it can offer, again, in a spiritual sense, as well as just the practical senses. So just to start with, you know, where podcasts are, you may or may not know that there are 4.5 million podcasts, active podcasts. There's more than that, actually, but probably around uh, active ones, the ones that people keep updating. There's like four and a half million of them. Um, <laughs> and this podcast, Against Everyone with Connor Beeb, fluctuates between being in the top 1% to 3% of all podcasts in the world um, by most of the metrics that people use, which is how many weekly listens um, or how many listens in a week to each episode. Now, that might sound like a lot, but if you take the most popular podcast, Joe Rogan, that 1% is not 
reflective of being anywhere close to him, who's also in the top 1%, obviously is the most popular podcast in the world. The difference between my podcast and his are millions and millions of downloads, <laughs> millions and millions of listens. Um, and that's just because most podcasts have almost no listens, um, very few. Now, those, less, those listens might mean a lot to the person that's putting the podcast out, so I'm not saying, oh, that's bad if they only get 30 listens, but just to show you the kind of scale of things. And, you know, podcasts are free. That means that all these podcasts are basically available to you for absolutely nothing. So all this work that goes into this I'm, I'm about to talk about is just something for you to consider. So here's my timeline, my history with this show. And I'm sure the timeline will be slightly off here um, and there, but it's still a pretty good one. I was in porn, as you all know, for a long time, for almost 10 years. And uh, as a result, I was asked to be on a lot of podcasts. So that's really where my relationship with podcasts start. I did listen to some before that, but things really picked up when I started being on them. And that was because I was the quote unquote smart porn star. I was writing about sex work and porn. I was appearing at conferences. I was talking at schools. I had a sex advice web show with Logo, uh, the TV network that started Drag Race. They had a website called New Now Next. I was the sex expert. I was completely unqualified. I told them that and they hired me anyway. They were like, you don't have to know anything about anything. Just pose these questions and answer them as best you can. Um, so I was doing all this public facing work around sex work. And that meant that I was getting asked to talk. Now, I hated this designation, the smart porn star or whatever it was that they would call me because very often that was coming from journalists. And I just thought, you know, most journalists I know are stupider than most porn stars I know who are much more resourceful, uh, <laughs> engaging and intuitive and dynamic people. But okay. And, and just as an example of that, the very first show I was asked to be on was this Canadian uh, podcast slash radio show. And the very first question, if I'm remembering this right, that the host asked me was, so what does your mother think about the fact that you do this? And my answer was, well, she's dead. So that was the very first question and answer, you know, it ground everything to a moment of silence for a second. And, you know, I guess ask a stupid question, get a brutal answer. Um, and around the same time, I was also going to uh, CIIS, the California Institute of Integral Studies, and I just left um, being at UMass. And that is coming into the picture here because academia is the place where you're supposed to be able to talk about big ideas. And a lot of that is just substantiated on the sort of phony documents that people are given, uh, you know, when they graduate from these programs or become professors or whatever. And obviously, um, I don't think too highly of a lot of my educational experiences in these formalized environments even though I kept trying again and again to go into them. But I felt very often like we weren't talking about anything real, that the people who I was talking to weren't really any more qualified than some of the artists and uh, 
journalists, well, some of the good journalists, and the musicians and the writers that I knew who were doing things that were far more intellectually interesting, engaging and pushing things forward, whereas academia is really just draining the life out of ideas. Um, and I started listening to podcasts as a result of being on them, I started listening to a lot of them. The big ones that I remember listening to, or the ones that I listened to the most, were the Disinformation Podcast, uh, hosted by Matt Staggs. I listened to Skeptico a lot, which at the time, before it kind of went down this rabbit hole of you know evil and conspiracy theories, was much more about NDEs and uh, near-death experiences and combating uh, scientific materialism, and Duncan Trussell's, uh, which was at that time called the Lavender Hour and then became the Duncan Trussell Family Hour uh, when he hosted it with his girlfriend at the time, Natasha Leggero. Those were the big three. And there was also New Books Network um, that came a little later, especially the psychoanalysis and uh, First Nations Studies or Native American Studies, I forget which one it was called. At some point, I got asked to appear on Duncan Trussell's podcast. I I don't know if this is true, but I think I might be the guest who's been on Duncan's podcast more than any other guest. <laughs> I've appeared so many times over the years on that show, and I'm just very happy for it, of course. But I'm not sure exactly how it happened. I think I might have been put in touch with Duncan through Matt Staggs, who ran the Disinfo podcast. And uh, as a result, I also met Daniela Boelli. I was so into that. I mean, that was such a huge moment for me, obviously. Uh, it really shifted where my life went. And I decided I really wanted to work on my own podcast because of that. I knew lots of interesting people anyway. So I did record five episodes of a podcast that never really came out. Some of those episodes I did actually use as episodes for this show. So episode 91 with Lynn Margulies, which I'm very glad I recorded because it ended up being the last recording with her before she died, um, and I had just been sitting on it for years. Um, 97 with Diana Young-Peak about uh, religion and mysticism, um, and with the architect and plant and stone communication artist slash expert Duncan Laurie on uh, episode 113. So I was really into this idea of intersections between science, spirituality, philosophy, politics, all that that came out of the culture of disinformation. If you remember this disinformation group started by Richard Metzger, and I was so influenced by that. I went to a disinformation conference really early on, um, which was Richard Metzger and Paul Loffley and Doug Rushkoff and Grant Morrison, just hanging out for the weekend with these people. And this is back before conspiracies became a much more conservative proposition. These were much more daring, left-wing, creative, anarchist um, propositions and lenses. And that really informed what I wanted to do with the podcast, but it just always felt wrong. What I had done never really felt like it was taking off. But it started to gather in this weird way where I was being asked more and more to be on podcasts that were taking the offering that I had about sex work and porn and sex and culture into new spaces. So 
I remember appearing on Thaddeus Russell's show and Christopher Ryan, um, who had tangentially speaking his show. And there was apparently <laughs> some conversation about me with Joe Rogan at the time. Um, Chris Ryan and Thaddeus Russell and Duncan Trussell, they brought up that you know, to Joe, like, oh, hey, what about this guy? And he was like, oh, I should have him on. Now, I'm not saying that to be like, oh, I could have been on Joe Rogan, but I'm just thinking about where he was at the time, where podcasts were at the time, and what was just kind of opening up from these new forms of media and the new kinds of conversations that were being validated, explored, the new ways of being a public intellectual, really, that were being established at that time. I know you might laugh to say, oh, Joe Rogan's not a public intellectual, but he really is in his own way. You might think he's a bad public intellectual, but he does have that presence where people go to him to think through and think with ideas and with problems. So I think all that was just sort of brewing at the time. I never, obviously I never appeared on Rogan. Who knows what would have happened to my life if I had, because it seemed to really make uh, people's career paths change. Um, and I was still though getting really tapped to be the smart porn star. And I moved to LA. Um, I was working so much in movies in LA at the time anyway. And I thought maybe I'll uh, take this new now next thing this web series I have forward maybe it'll be a tv show something like that and that didn't happen I'm actually I wouldn't say, I would say I'm grateful that that didn't happen I wouldn't say I'm grateful that nothing with tv or movies happened while I lived in LA but there I met people who became friends who were later frequent guests on the show like Dr. Chris Donahue, Caitlin Doty, Peter Rollins, Drew Drogi, Aaron Ryan and many others this podcast bug was still kind of with me. Um, so I did, uh, I did a live event with Kieran Deal. And Kieran Deal has since gone on to do all kinds of different media. She's hilarious. She's a comedian. And I was inspired by The Lavender Hour, um, Duncan's previous format for his show, where he would talk with guests. Um with Natasha, or they would talk back and forth about things. And I was so inspired by that because I thought, look at that. It's two people reflecting with each other, and you can see them sort of growing together, and you can see sometimes them growing apart. You can see them disagreeing and clashing. And it was really interesting because they cared about each other and they cared about each other's opinions. And so I thought, I need to have a partner. And so I asked Kieran if she would do this with me. And we tried, and we failed, but it was a cool format. We had such a good rapport. We would just, you know, show up and say, okay, I want to um, talk about this. And we'd throw something down on the table, and then we both kind of go at it. It was silly, um, but it was, it was fun. Kieran got a job writing for a reality TV show, um, and then we just couldn't do it. So... It never really went anywhere, but it still helped develop the skill, and my desire to do this didn't go away. It did, however, deepen my understanding that a good podcast uh, is about the host as much as it is about the guest. That's one of the secrets that I learned along the way, that when you listen to a podcast, you want to hear someone's voice again and again. Um, you want to hear that person's voice 
experiencing and expressing growth and new understanding and new direction of interest. It's, so it's not just about the guests and who comes on. Those are interviews. But a podcast, you know, the host of the podcast, whose name is you know, very often the name of the show, is in the meantime, in the world, podcasts were really taking this new position, um, a position that was actually changing culture. I think the best example of this is Chapo Trap House. I mean, really, the way in which Chapo redirected people's attention to politics, democratic socialism, the problems with the democratic party and liberalism, neoliberalism in the US, it really, I think, redirected people's thinking and their efforts. And it really aligned them with the possibility of Bernie Sanders being president. And that's, you know, where Bernie bros and dirtbag left and all that kind of stuff came from. Uh, if you remember those terms, maybe you don't even remember those terms now, maybe you're <laughs> a new or a younger listener, and the, that means nothing to you. But I think it's really interesting that that podcast and some of the surrounding podcasts began to really open up the possibilities for what a podcast was actually capable of doing and the kind of presence it could have. So that happened. And at the same time, uh, there were three things that were going on in my life. Um, the first was I embarked on my lifelong ambition to read a book a day. I was really interested in the fact that Susan Sontag and Noam Chomsky and some other people were said to have read a book a day. I had always wanted to do that. So I did it for the first time for six weeks. And suddenly all these people who have written these books were talking to each other, you know, within me. They were meeting each other. Different ideas were commingling that wouldn't normally commingle. And it was so agitating and exciting for me. I started an online course called The Culture of the Current. Um, this course did not go anywhere. <laughs> I think like five people signed up for it, but it was so generative for me because I wrote these long uh, lectures about all sorts of things, which later became episodes of the show, solo episodes of the show early on about time and space, about privacy, about anarchism and breaking up with the state. Um, all, all sorts of things about uh, mass shootings. So the third thing that came along was the spark. Um, it's the thing that ignited my ability to do a podcast, which is Patreon. When I saw that there's a way to actually fund these efforts, I thought, okay, now I can do it. It seemed reasonable. It seemed like I didn't have to have sponsors. I'm going to talk about Patreon a bit at the end of the show, not just in a way where I'm saying sign up for my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Connor Abib, which you should do, but um, also just a little bit more of what it actually gave to me and gives to a lot of artists and creators and why. I talked with my friend Caitlin Doty, who also had a Patreon at the time, and I said, you know, I really want to start a podcast and I want Patreon to be a part of it. And she still has her wildly successful YouTube show, Ask a Mortician. And so she helped me understand how to get started. Get a camera, get a mic, here's how you do it. And so I started recording episodes, and uh, I also collaborated with her editor and friend, the artist Landis Blair, who edited her videos uh, for a long time. And 
I did all video episodes. Um, there were video episodes at first for YouTube because I was really clinging to this idea that if people were looking at me in movies, that they really wanted to see me, not just listen to me. That actually visually <laughs> was the way that people needed to connect with me. That, um, by the way, is one of the many ways in which I self-stigmatize after my previous line of work, uh, which maybe I'll talk about on a forthcoming episode, even though I don't do that kind of work anymore. Uh, Not that I'm ashamed of it at all. I'm proud of a lot of what I've done, but it just is not something that I do anymore. And in fact, doing this podcast is what helped me move into talking about all these other things that I was interested in because I was always getting asked to talk about sex and culture, which was fine. But what I really began to understand as I did this show was that the reason why I talked about sex and culture in the way I did and the reason why I was asked to speak about it wasn't necessarily because I was some sex scholar. I mean, I had to do a lot of scholarly work over time um, or that I was some sort of, you know, porn and sex work scholar, but that I had a gesture that was interesting, an ability to demystify something which was really difficult for people to connect with as long as that veil of mystification was there again going back to uh, a quote from one of my guests the great uh, Freya Roshin who says uh, mystification without engagement is a silencing tactic I mean you really see that around uh, pornography and sex work But I also think you see it around occultism. You see it around philosophy. Um, You know, philosophical jargon. People don't like it. You see it around radical political ideas. You see it around the paranormal. These were all things that I was very interested in trying to talk about in a way that really just kind of broke them down into something friendly. So it was creating an arena of ideas where there was a sense of warmth and a sense of friendliness. So that was all going on in those early episodes. It was pretty incredible, um, for me at least. The podcast opened everything up. It helped me with the sense of loneliness that I'd long felt. I mean, I really, one of the reasons why I do anything I've done in my life is out of a sense of loneliness, uh, a sense of frustration of not being heard and also not being in the company of people that are thinking or feeling uh, or doing the things that I'm doing. Um, it connected me with people who I idolized. I-, I got to talk with Scott Thompson of the Kids in the Hall and Brian Evanson, the horror writer, and Alex Vitale, the anti-police activist. I mean, these things were all so exciting for me and having a podcast is just like, well, now you can talk to anybody. You just tell them you have a podcast. That's actually gotten a bit more difficult now. So don't think that that's actually just, oh, I have a podcast. Will you talk to me? You know, and you reach out to everybody and they say, yes, it's, um, there's so many podcasts that it has eroded the novelty of being asked to be on a podcast. However, it still gives a great excuse to collaborate. And that was something that happened too. 
I got to collaborate with people that I never would have done anything with otherwise, but that maybe I knew or that I was connected to in some way. So Will Meneker and Felix Biederman from Chapel Trap House, I got to engage with them and talk about things. I probably wouldn't have been able to do that without a podcast, even though we had some connections between people that we knew. Um, Hassan Piker, who now is obviously massive um, Twitch <laughs> streamer and I don't know. I was just going to call him an internet celebrity, but I bet that he would resent that term anyway. <laughs> you know, political commenter. Um, ben Ehrenreich, who I knew was writing these amazing books about Palestine. He's writing novels, writing essays. And I just wanted to really go meet him. And we did have some people that we both knew, but how would I ever have been able to collaborate with them. The podcast gave me that opportunity to collaborate. And then finally, I just drove across the country um, and I met with people one-on-one with the mics in hand because I used to record in person all the time. Um, And then uh, that was huge for me. I got to, I think, express that best in episode 50 when I met with Mona El-Tahawi, the Muslim anarchist, feminist writer and activist um, in Canada. And it just clicked. We had met before, but we didn't get to really sit down and just have our way talking about what was going on in the world because there was so much tension around sexuality, pleasure, Me Too, feminism, politics, and we just opened all of that up. I mean, that episode was so inspiring to me just to have that conversation with Mona. It was so liberating. So we're almost at 250 episodes now. I suppose this might have served me better as episode 250. I don't know the podcast about podcasting, but anyway, that's okay. I'm going to talk about the cool stuff and the hard stuff and the spiritual stuff and the economic stuff now. Um, I hope some of that, though, was helpful to you to hear just so you understand some of the places that this show comes out of um, and some of the things I was responding to, some of the things I was working against, some of the things that were inspiring me. And maybe there's a well there for you for your own projects, whether it's podcasts or not podcasting or, or, or something else. The cool stuff, I mean, the really good stuff, you know, podcasts are free. This podcast is free. You don't need to pay to listen to it. So it's free on that level. And I love that. I love that there's this offering that's coming from me that's just available to others. Podcasts are also free in the sense that the conversation is free. It moves in and out of wherever it needs to move in and out of. When I record a podcast, I just engage with the person's work. I'll talk about that in a minute, but I engage with the person's work and then I just get ready to kind of meet them. I come up with some conversational buoys about where I want to take the conversation, but I always let the guests take it where they want to as well. And we just kind of move around um, with wherever the conversation takes us. So there's a freedom there as well. And it's decentralized. Podcasts are not owned by anybody. You know, no one owns the podcasting network. It's out there through RSS, if you've ever seen that means really simple syndication, which is a file that's easily readable um, and easily updatable by all sorts of websites, basically. So 
I post it and it gets reposted and distributed and it gets updated and all that because it's simple and it's decentralized. People have created their own podcast distribution platforms. Um, and so in addition to Spotify and Apple and all that kind of stuff, the connection to you as a listener, that happens in lots of ways. Um, one of the ways in which it happens is when I'm recording. Um, so not so even before <laughs> you hear it, I'm thinking of you. So when I record with someone, I'm always aware of that third presence in the room. And the third presence is the listener. So it's me and the guest and the listener. And I try to make sure that every episode offers something to all three of us on that level. That offers something to me, offers something to the guest, and offers something to the listener. And that is, I think, <laughs> when I know that things aren't going well with the podcast, it's when I've forgotten one of those groups of people. Um, and when I know things are going well, it's when I don't even really have to think about any of that. And it just kind of happens. I've sort of, uh, I don't know, unconsciously held the tension. And it's emerged that way. The connection that you make to each other through listening is also something that I think is really special. You know, if you feel lonely or frustrated with the lack of conversations about the things that you want to talk about or um, the lack of conversations about your interests or, you know, bringing disparate or seemingly disparate threads of ideas and thoughts and philosophies and spiritualities together and you find them here, uh, then you're in a community of people that are finding that. I I know that there's no way that I can get you to all talk with each other, but just know that there are lots of people that are mulling over these things. I think that that's pretty incredible. Um, it's really special for me when I did the book tour for Hawk Mountain to meet all these different people sitting in the audience that didn't even know each other, that lived in the same region, that had listened to the show. Um, and that all had their own favorite episodes and could talk to each other about those episodes. That's the greatest hope with the show in a lot of ways is that when I offer something to you, it generates um, something for you, even if that's a conversation in your private life or new directions in your thinking or your artistic work. So the hard stuff. <laughs> I'm going to talk about that now. There's a lot that goes into this. Um, it, one of the hardest things about the podcast is that it's free. <laughs> That's also one of the hardest things. I don't get paid for any of this. Um, not directly, at least. It's a lot of work, obviously. Uh, and so this is an episode about work. It is a lot of work. Podcast work is work. <laughs> and I think that I have felt the diminishment of that work from so many people. Like when I tell someone I have a podcast, people are like, oh yeah, everybody has a podcast. You know, there's that song, Another White Boy with a Podcast. I don't know if you've heard that song or not. It's pretty infectious. Um, and, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm part Arab, so it doesn't fully apply. But it's that kind of dismissal um, even though that song is definitely about a lot of podcasts that are really out there. I mean, it, it's really accurately portraying a lot of podcasts that are out there. Um, and that's part of the reason why podcasts are dismissed, because a lot of just two bros without a lot to say have podcasts. Um, but throwing that all out 
uh, is not appropriate. And it's something that's very familiar to me as someone who has done sex work and someone who writes. You know, when I did sex work, uh, of course, it was way worse for sex work because that is regulated um, or made illegal, criminalized, um, and stigmatized in a different way. But also you told people and people would be like, oh, yeah, I always wanted to do that. You know, um, like it was nothing, like it didn't take a certain skill set or like writing, you know, I would tell people I'm a writer. Oh, I'm a writer too. Now, look, that's a hard thing to handle because I want everybody to feel like they can do the kinds of creative and expressive uh, work or efforts that they want. So I don't want to be like, well, yeah, but I did it, you know, and, and I also don't want to be like, uh, well, I got here to where I am because lots of hard work. I mean, all that's true, but I also don't want to cut people off from, you know, just being able to radically transform their lives and do the things that they want and the things that they're interested to, or to be a gatekeeper or whatever. So it's a hard, <laughs> it's a hard balance there. But I also don't want people to completely diminish the amount of effort and the skill set that develops when you sustain something like this for a long time and when you really go for it. I already alluded to also the idea that I sometimes feel like I have nothing to say <laughs> and people have told me that I have nothing to say. Certainly when I started this um, and even when I was before this, when I was writing or uh, just doing any talks around the world, people were like, just, you know, put a dick in your mouth and shut up and all that, you know, uh, because I had done sex work. And so immediately like stigmatized from there. But just beyond that, I mean, anybody that goes out and makes a podcast, people, you know, are immediately suspicious that that person has anything to say. And that's something that I'm suspicious of myself too. Like with this episode, I was thinking, is this even interesting? I don't know, but I still want to talk about it. And if this one isn't interesting, that's okay. There are, as of this one, 248 other episodes, and one of those has got to strike. You know, one of those has got to, got to, uh, well, strike, not the baseball strike, but one of those has got to, uh, you know, connect with you. Um, creating content. Now, this is one of the absolute worst things about the show. I will sometimes do a show that I'm so proud of, an episode that I'm so proud of that I don't want to do a show for another three weeks because I've had this long conversation with someone and I feel like, I hope this doesn't sound egotistical, but I feel like a whole bunch of new ideas have arisen out of that conversation. I think it's really uh, a beautiful meeting with somebody where a lot of things rose up that I and the guests haven't thought of before, and that means I know that some of the listeners haven't thought of these things before either. And I put it out, and then I have to make another one a week later. And nothing gets to be a kind of artifact. Um, now, you can listen, go back and listen to the episodes, of course, but nothing gets to be something that feels like it has staying power. And certainly the culture of podcasting uh, doesn't encourage that by any means, unless it's like, a, you know, one of the serial podcasts where you have 10 episodes that are building a story and then people can listen to that like an audiobook. This isn't like that. This is the story of my engagement with ideas and other people and an audience and books and music and <laughs> spirituality. That's not the same. And so things just seem to rise up, have a kind of potency, and then just fall away and be forgotten. 
And there's no way to catch up, really. Um, people are listening to an episode, but then there's another episode next week. So I'm like, well, I just have to keep putting out another one. That's what people have come to expect. It's what the kind of grind is all about. And I think people are kind of fed up with it. Now, my show naturally defies that in some ways because I have these really long episodes. I don't know if that works in my favor or against me, but at least it requires some depth of commitment to listen to a full episode in a way that if I just did a show that was 10 minutes, it wouldn't. And I'm not saying that those shows are bad. There are a lot of shows like that and YouTube shows and so forth that I really like, but um, they don't require the commitment to actually just get into the episode. There's the confusion of whether or not somebody on the show will make it a big episode or not a big episode. So if you are thinking of starting a podcast, I just want to let you know, having a huge guest on doesn't mean anything sometimes. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. I've had people who are really, truly famous on the show and the episode won't do very well. And then I'll have an episode with someone that is virtually unknown at least at the time of recording, and that episode will do great. I have no idea what causes the show to do really well or to not do really well. I actually hired someone. This is one of the other very difficult things about this show, and it is going to be sound like a little bit of a humble brag, I suppose, but I hired someone, a few people, um, to collaborate with me on like how to make the show better, how to make it reach more people. And their conclusion ultimately was, hey, we don't actually really know why your show is successful at all in the first place. You're not doing any of the things that we tell people to do. <laughs> so we can't really give you advice. Um, just keep doing what you're doing. And that was great. You know, it felt kind of good, but it also was like, well, shit, there's not someone else that I can really follow. I don't really know how this show is working. I still don't after doing it this long. So I just press on and keep doing it. Inviting people is a big drag. <laughs> if you think about this, every time I have someone on the show, I have to basically cold call them. Now, I'm a pretty well-networked person at this point, but I still have to reach out to people I don't know and be like, hey, do you want to be on this show? And I know you probably get podcast invites all the time. And here's what's interesting about mine. And by the way, my show, like most shows, does not pay the guest for this experience. But I promise you it'll be different because it'll be a good and fun and interesting experience for you. And we'll like the conversation. I mean, that is one of the cool things, by the way, is that how many guests have told me like that was a really good conversation, which I mean, that is huge for me. I'm so happy to offer something in that way, but just getting, you know, someone to email you and say, Hey, I need 90 minutes of your time, uh, for nothing essentially. And I, I don't promote works on the show, right? Like I'm not, Hey, your new book is coming out. Let's, you know, get it out there. Let's put it on blast. That's not what my show is about. It's about the body of work, which is one of the other hard things is that I try to read all the works or engage with all the works that someone has put out. Sometimes that's almost impossible. Like I had Ramsey Campbell on the show and he has dozens and dozens of novels out. So I couldn't read everything he put out. But a lot of the other people that I had on, um, I do read all their works and that is expensive. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort just to hold them all in your head and then hold the space. So <laughs> that's always a tough one too. 
people asking me to be on the show, that's also sometimes flattering, but very often uncomfortable. Um, I almost never say yes to the people that say, can I be on the show or whose PR people email me. I still encourage PR people to email me because it has happened, but it's happened like three times. And that's because I'm always looking for the person that's the right fit for me in what I'm thinking about now and the things that I'm interested in talking about and that I think I can really offer something, again, to the guest and to the audience rather than just giving press. And that's how marketing machines work is just how can we get press for this person? And that's not what I'm really offering. And it's not (laughs) what I, obviously I like that when I put out my book, I want people inviting me on to give me press and all that kind of stuff. So I understand it. There's nothing bad about it, but I don't really do that on the show. And sometimes I feel bad. Sometimes people are awesome and they have great books out or they're doing something really cool. And I'm like, yeah, but it's not really the right time for me to do this with you or for you. So that always feels kind of crummy. Um, And... (laughs) Finally, <laughs> see, there's a lot of hard stuff that goes into this. Finally, being bored with the internet, being bored with podcasting, you know, like anything else, you just kind of burn out. And sometimes I'm like, it would be cool to just go away for a year and just think about shit instead of constantly trying to outpicture it, instead of constantly trying to show people that I'm having these conversations internally by having them externally and then presenting them and giving them to everybody. Obviously, I don't truly feel that way enough to uh, let myself slow down because I'm still offering these episodes and I do really love talking to people. I hope this doesn't all sound kind of complainy. This is actually all stuff that I've had to learn to navigate with, to create a skill set around. And you know, it has all built skills in me, just like any job. But these are all the kinds of things that come up when you do this work. And so when people really dismiss or ridicule podcasts, well, okay, sometimes it's correct. Sometimes people don't have to develop any of these skills. But I've had to, I've had to do all this, you know, pretty much on my own. So just the rundown of what the actual work is, it's, it's, figuring out who I want to talk to, researching their work, all of it, (laughs) sending them emails, trying to get through the layers of people that are supposed to say no to me (laughs) before as someone says yes, scheduling everything, then just holding the space when I talk to them um, and having questions prepared. Then when that's done, editing the episode, posting it to you know, the editing it and posting it to all the platforms that it needs to be posted to, which is of course the RSS, but then also the, uh, Patreon and my website and then promoting it on social media and creating images for it, writing show notes. I mean, on and on and on. It's a lot of work. And again, that's not a complaint, but it's just a skill set, And I've had to do it all on my own because mostly the people, uh, that offer me, any kind of assistance, you know, I get like a hundred emails from companies that are like, you should partner with us for our SEO or our AI optimization of podcasts. They all want to make it less human. Um, if I could find people that were offering something that was much more organic, I think I would go for it. But mostly I've just gotten requests from people that want to make the show a less human thing. That's less about communication and more about a kind of slick and polished marketing. So There's all that. 
And of course, there's the indebtedness to things that I'd rather not be indebted to. The MP3 format, the digital sound format, Apple, <laughs> iPod plus broadcast. That's where the term podcast comes from. So it's really an Apple term. And that's all frustrating to me too. Wow, this has been a really long journey. I hope some of this is interesting to you. Like I said, um, the spiritual stuff. There are sort of spiritual aspects to podcasting that I'll just mention one or two of these at the top, but I really want to talk about the spiritual uh, development or offering, uh, the spiritual offerings and spiritual developmental offerings that podcasts give, which I think are really cool. And I don't think people talk about or think about those enough. So just the kind of spiritual reality of it, if you think about it, all our communications, including this transmission, you know, it's being beamed through space and coming back down to you across a great distance, which means that it's carrying within it a piece of the oblivion of space, that void, just to communicate with it, um, with anybody. It has to communicate with it, with space, with that void, and bring that into your presence every single time. That's crazy. And also, it has to deal with becoming a quantity, a system of uh, signals, of ones and zeros, of course, but also these rays, <laughs> these little bits of information that are strung together in this flipbook fashion to create the illusion of continuous sound. So there's lots of voids in podcasting. And there's also the connection through time. I mean, some of my guests have died. David Graeber, Michael Brooks, uh, Jim Lovelock, Lynn Margulies. They've all passed since I've <laughs> put these up, these episodes with them up. So, And m maybe one day you'll listen to the show if it's still around and I'll be dead. And so you're listening to artifacts of the dead as well. And you can listen to any episode at any point in time and <laughs> access it. So a lot of times I'm like, on this episode, this week, this is what happened, blah, blah, blah. But of course, those things are long gone. So you're getting this strange archive of time. Friendship with a stranger. This is something that I would love <laughs> more of us to recognize when we make these podcasts. You know, I meet with someone usually for the first time when I do a show. So I've reached out to them. Um, our first conversation ever is the conversation that you hear when you listen. And to me, that gives people a kind of portrait of two strangers meeting in friendship. So I love that. I love the idea of a show that just shows that strangers are friends when they take an interest in each other. And that is the principle that I bring to the show is the spirit of resonance, of taking an interest. There are all kinds of things that people on my show say that I do not agree with. <laughs> and rather than debate them, because I do not find disagreement at all really useful or helpful, I don't find debate really useful or helpful or interesting. Um, I instead try to take in what they say with the principle of resonance, which is I hear what they say. I try to really, I mean, vibration, I try to vibe with it and I see where it sends me in my thinking. And I try to bring that in. Now, sometimes I do disagree. Sometimes the guests disagree with me and we do go back and forth on stuff, but mostly I just try to really take an interest and move with them and meet them and be present with them. 
I hope that I succeed. Um, but I do think that that makes this show different than other shows. Um, but some of the best shows, I think, do that. I love Riders and Company. is one of my, my favorite shows. It's a CBC broadcast. It's Eleanor Wachtel as the host. It's not quite a podcast. It's more of a radio show where she just interviews people. She's not so revealing about herself or where she's at. But the questions she asks are so warm. They really are about taking an interest in the person, and I really resonate with that. And with Duncan, too. Duncan does it as well. I want to just say here that I'm not saying that this podcast itself is a spiritual act, although it is an offering. Um, I mean, sure, everything is a spiritual act, yes, and conversation is the new Eucharist, is something Rudolf Steiner said, and yeah, I agree with that, but this isn't that. <laughs> not really. Instead, it's the result of something that enjoins and attends the spiritual development path, which is practice. What I mean by practice, um, I'm going to borrow the definition from the great philosopher Peter Sloterdijk. Practice or exercise is the oldest form of self-referential training with the most momentous consequences. Its results do not influence external circumstances or objects, as in the labor or production process. They develop the practicing person himself and get him into shape as the subject that can. I try to do my practice and then make a podcast that naturally extends from practice. So what happens here is really a natural extension of me and who I am. And I think that that's <laughs> the best way to do really anything. But you have to do that practice part as well. Um, well, you don't have to, but <laughs> I think that that's what makes the best kinds of conversations and the best art and uh, the best anything, really, is when... It becomes an extension of who you are becoming and who you are through practice. So just to talk about the way this show is funded and makes money. Um, and I just want to go back to the fact that the entire industry of podcasting, if we can call it an industry, is free. So it's an industry if it's free. That's 4.5 million shows that you can access right now for free and i ask you if you have never supported the show to consider that um consider supporting the show now just based on that fact not just my podcast but the world of podcasting so you can support it by going to patreon.com forward slash connor don't worry, I'm not going to make this whole ending part an ad for my Patreon, but I do think it's important here just to notice how much is available to you. Do you keep taking in podcasts? And like, if you're not giving back to them, it's okay. I know that not everybody can, but just think about how you want to resonate with the things that you care about. Um, what kind of frequency you want to strike with that tuning fork of your behaviors and your life and in the economic realm. And I think for me, <laughs> I've never, ever once taken on a sponsor for this show. If I met a sponsor that was like completely aligned with my values and the values of the show, I would do it. But that's never happened. Advertisements are mostly lies. You know, it's like 
people and you know you do those ads at the beginning of shows and they just feel so forced and jammed in it's like do you like listening to podcasts do they make you feel comfortable you know what else makes me feel comfortable my snuggle snuggle shirt my snuggle snuggle shirt is made completely out of alpaca wool you know like whatever it just sounds so fake because it is so what i want is to have a show that is actually (laughs) resonating with people and that people feel connected to it and that they offer based on the fact that they like that I am in the world doing what I'm doing because this is something that I've said many times on the show nobody should be paid for their labor you can't really pay someone for your labor that for their labor that is an insane concept like to say that I'm paying you for your labor, you're paying me for my labor, is like I'm going to take something from you. I'm going to wrench away the freedom that you have in engagement with time and space. And I'm going to turn that into a quantity. And I'm going to somehow reward you if you do it right. I mean, that to me is completely bizarre. What I would love is if people hear this and say, oh, I like that he is. Not just what he does, but I like that he is. That has value. I like that this show is, that these conversations are, that they exist. And, um, you know, I'm going to enter into the commons in a way. I'm going to enter into the all, the way that we're all connected in economy. And I'm just going to almost... You can get an understanding of why people throw coins in fountains or wells or whatever if you think about that uh, in that way, like, oh, I'm going to put this symbol here because it's going to resonate. It's going to help desires show up. It's going to help these dreams continue. I'm going to offer something here. So I think that it's just that image. And I think that that's one of the best ways to relate to people through the economic realm. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Abib. I mean it. I feel cheesy saying that at the top of every show. I do. Um, because I can't quite deprogram all the stuff that everybody deals with with money and money shame and self-aggrandizing and self-publication or self-promotion uh, and all that kind of shit too. But it's there. At the cafe that I took these notes at, you know, writing down the notes to come up with what I was going to say on the show. I was surrounded by work. It's everywhere, you know, people working at the cafe, people spending their money, which is connected to their labor, all the stuff of the cafe, of course, the coffee, the structure, the clothes they were wearing, the clothes I was wearing, the music playing, the lights, the light that is even blocked or allowed into the cafe by the building that was across the street that was also built and connected to labor and the way that the road was made and narrowed. There are people working, but not working at the cafe as cafe workers also, people having meetings there, and people talking about their work lives with each other even if they weren't at work, they were on their breaks. They were just talking with each other uh, and feeling the results of their work lives. And some people, no doubt, were on their work breaks. So they had just escaped work for a little bit, not really escaped, but just taken a little rest and gotten coffee. You know, I I see everywhere that labor and work is inescapable. And I also understand deeply that no one should be paid for their labor. And 
I also understand that work is such a strange thing to do in a time when you think there are more urgent causes. Perhaps illuminating it, illuminating one of the ways in which I do work, might help for us to, or maybe just me or you, if you want to start a podcast or you have a podcast or (laughs) you just like listening to them, escape some of the tangles of mystification so we can create an engagement instead of that mystification. We can uncover spiritual truth rather than just expressing the materiality of all the conditions. And also we can relate to each other economically without simply paying someone for work for their labor time. So I hope this little piece of me talking about labor and work, especially a form of labor which is often dismissed and even derided and ridiculed, offers something to you. Thanks. (laughs) I didn't realize it would take me an hour uh, just to talk about podcasting on a podcast. Thank you for listening and for supporting and just for being. All right. Talk to you next time. (laughs) 